Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Hogothinga podcast. I'm Cora Anthony, the training and development specialist here at the Native Learning Center. I am super excited about today's episode. We have some repeat offenders joining us. I think this is the third third time that they're with us. I'm very excited to sit down and speak with them again. So today on the show, we have Dr. Cynthia Annett, a research associate professor at KSU and data and mapping Maven, who is also a Google Earth Outreach Network trainer. Cynthia, go ahead and say hi to everybody. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here. We also have Eugene Goldfart, an adjunct professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, who retired after 30 years with HUD and has been a longtime NLC instructor. And we absolutely adore him. Eugene, go ahead and say hello to everybody. Hello, everyone. It's a beautiful day. And last but definitely not least, the star of today's episode, Mark Junker. He's a tribal response coordinator for the Sac and Fox Nation of Missouri in Kansas and Nebraska, and who is also active in many national tribal environmental initiatives. Mark, go ahead and say hello to everybody. Good morning. Glad to be here. Awesome. So today we will be discussing brownfield programs in tribal communities. And I want to just jump right in. And Mark, I'm going to like nitpick on you a little bit. So Mark, as the tribal response coordinator for the Sac and Fox Nation of Missouri and Kansas and Nebraska, can you explain to our listeners what is tribal response and what are brownfields? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, that's one of the questions that it's it's uh, a question I get an awful lot, and it's it's one that's difficult to answer quite often because it's uh, your understanding of what I actually do is going to be really dependent on how much experience you've had with brownfields. And when I say I'm a tribal response coordinator, people will, you know, if they're interested, they'll look at me and say, what? And then I, I'll go into a little bit of detail of what I do. But uh, the program was set up to help the tribes administer brownfields. And brownfields are properties that aren't being used in the community because people think they're contaminated with uh, pollutants or hazardous materials. And so what a tribal response program is going to do is give the tribes the capacity to find out where those properties are, uh, assess them, clean them up if need be. And then the real cool part is they'll begin to reuse them. But in the meantime, we can get all kinds of calls. When they say response, it could be anything from a dead raccoon in the road that needs cleaned up um, to uh, a spill at the gas station. So the, the range of calls that I get is, is pretty diverse. And, and it's sort of interesting that um, on one hand, there's a logical connection between you clean up this property that's contaminated and then you want to bring it back to the community. On the other hand, a lot of brownfields are just stuck properties that aren't contaminated, but they, they, people think they might be contaminated and they're unwilling to spend the money to investigate, to see if they're contaminated, um, to do something about it. So Mark has an interesting role here, which sometimes he's dealing with really dangerous situations and we have to protect health and safety as soon as possible. And then on the other hand, he has properties that could have been sitting for 10 to 20 years with nothing happening. And it's up to him to figure out how to turn this around, how to get it with some type of where it's a plus for the community in the neighborhood rather than a negative. So I, I have a question. So 
if it's a situation like that where it's like a stock property, Eugene, like you mentioned, like it's been there, and then after they reassess it and it's not really contaminated or whatnot, then what happens then? Like, is it like what's the word that I'm looking for? Like, can they rehabilitate it and like use it for a living or create like a park or something like that? Or what what happens to those type of properties? I'll take the lead, but I, I, Mark will follow up. But um, that's sort of what we're doing with this podcast series, that it's it's not easy to get these stuff properties and put them back. And we're going to, each of these podcast series, we're going to try and go over a different one of the steps that you have to take, and you have to take lots of steps. Um, the main thing I'd emphasize quickly in response to your question is it's really up to the community to figure out what they want on that property and what's feasible. It, can they, is it feasible to think that the private sector is going to build a little store there and that way we'll get money? Or do we think that, you know, the private sector is not going to be interested in this property. So could the tribe build uh, a police station here or, or some type of tribal facility or maybe make it into a park and, and, one of the things we do with TAB is, is we help facilitate visioning sessions where the community gets together and says, hey, you know, what would we like to see at this property? And we're going to talk about that specifically at a future podcast. Mark, what do you have to add to that? Yeah, the, the, the community goals are really important with what happens to those stuck properties. We've had several... Uh, and the vision was to use them in our domestic violence program uh, as offices, as shelters. And so cleaning up those properties was important for those programs. We were able to work together with them to accomplish some things. And sometimes we fall short of our goals. Uh, at the very least, what we wound up with was some decent green space, um, you know, a, a yard that, uh, you know, we've got a mow during the summer. But other than that, there's really... Um, it's better than a, than a dilapidated house that really didn't have much of a future because of all the asbestos around. And, and we're taking the long view that um, sometimes we talk about an interim land use, like, like let's have a community garden here. As, as the perception of this property goes from negative, who'd want to be here to, oh, this is a real big part of our neighborhood. And then maybe we can bring in private sector money that will have the money to to really redevelop this site. I want to foreshadow our next um, episode that an important part of all this is getting data to figure out, you know, what's the reality and what's possible. And Cynthia is our, our data guru. No, thank you guys for that, because I've always wondered, right, and, and I'm very you to brownfields and this i'm learning so much every time we record a different episode um but yeah like how do you change the perception so i think yeah the the idea of like a community garden or like um oh like a not a compost where but where you grow like your own food and things like that like it's like you can bring the kids i know here when i when i was teaching in Big Cypress, we had something of the sort where the kids would grow their own things and whatnot. So kind of reimagining those spaces, that would be kind of cool. Thank you for sharing that. So Mark, I'm going to I'm going to pound on you again. So can you share with us how was this program set up and how long has it been up and running? 
Okay, the uh, program had its roots in about 2008 um, as part of the SAC and Fox environmental program. We have three departments here. Uh, we have our, our GAP, uh, which is our general assistance program. We have our uh, surface water program, and then we have the brownfields. We used to have air as well. Uh, we no longer have that program, but may uh, go about uh, getting that back in the future. But the Brownfields program was set up uh, with under the GAP program uh, to look at some of the various properties. And when it was first set up, uh, they were they were busy. They had uh, five different cleanups they did on ten different properties that were assessed. Let Let me also point out, like uh, most of our audience today is, is like uh, tribal housing authorities, tribally designated housing entities, and uh, Mark's is, is he gets his funding from EPA and um, the housing authorities get their funding from HUD. HUD is the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. So on one hand, when you think about a brownfield, that's a piece of property that's dilapidated and stuck. And and how do you rejuvenate it? You would think that belongs on the HUD side with the HUD funding on for various reasons. We're not going to get into today. It, it really um, HUD was EPA picked up the ball and ran with it because EPA was being blamed by everyone. How come we can't get these properties? They're just sitting there. So and HUD HUD had this. We give money and it's up to the locals to decide what to do with it. So EPA said we need some leadership here. We got to get involved. So when Mark mentioned GAP, that's a major program source of revenue for tribes through. Um, EPA to, to, you know, look at the environment. And um, that was going long before we even thought of doing brownfields on, on tribal land. And, and so many of these programs are a little bit artificial because, of course, a community is going to see things in a more holistic fashion. They're going to see, oh, there's a smokestack that is causing asthma and there's this stuck property, and our water's not drinkable. And, and they're going to see that as a package. They're not going to see them as individual media. <laughs> and, and so one of the things that we do at, at Tribal Tab is to try to help them figure out, this is the agency that takes care of that. This is the agency that takes care of that. And you pull them all together so you have several different partners to get things moving forward. And, and that is one of our subtexts of this whole podcast series is we think there are a lot of benefits of tribal response programs and tribal housing authorities working together and they have worked together. And that's one of the things we're going to try and showcase in our podcast series is examples of um, tribal housing authorities and tribal response programs, helping each other out and helping the tribe out. That's the bottom line. Yeah, and the, the thing about the tribal response program that is really kind of unique is, especially with an EPA, and I don't know, maybe to a certain extent in HUD as well, people have gotten put in, in silos and they become very expert in a certain subject or a certain media, and they're really, really good at what they do, but what they're not really good at is figuring out who needs their services, um, how can people take advantage of it, and that's one of the things that the Brownfields program um, has allowed me to do is kind of step out of the box of specific media and try and connect people um, 
with the, the, the expertise they need to get a property unstuck. And, and that's one of the things we, we emphasize that, what do they say? It takes a village to raise a child. Well, it, it takes a, a village and more so to redevelop a brownfield. And, it, and we, it, we, when we talked about that visioning sessions that, that we help out with tab, we, we talk about getting all the stakeholders involved and talking together and saying, you know, what can we do together? How can we work together to, to change, to improve a situation? So would it be safe to say that you guys are kind of like the liaison to, to help get the people to the right sources and, and, and the right connections? Yes you know, and no, like uh, no one size fits all. I'll say that and turn it over to Mark. Yeah. Uh Sometimes the, the word liaison um, uh, may lend itself to someone who really doesn't have a dog in the fight. They're just like trying to put uh, groups together. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to think that I very much have a dog in the fight. And uh, so I, you know, uh, I, I am concerned and interested in the outcomes, whether it's directly involving my tribe, my department. Um, it, it, I, I think we all like to see progress being made. And uh, in, in the, the case of, you know, the Sack and Fox Emergency Response or Tribal Response Program. Can you repeat that, Mark? It, it kind of faded out. Or was <laughs> I'm sorry about that. My, I'm kind of losing my voice a little bit this morning. Oh, no. But, uh, yeah, uh, we really have the, the belief that uh, there's good things that we can accomplish and we'd like to see them done right. With that yeah, and, and, Mark, and Mark speaking, Mark speaking as a travel response coordinator for his tribe is is definitely a person who is really good at pulling people in that need to be in in the discussion. And what we do is travel tab for our technical assistance is we might make suggestions. Um, we're always in the assistance role. And one of the things that we can assist with is different techniques for community engagement or um, helping to connect uh, a TRP person like Mark to the person in the agency that could answer questions or should be at the table. But the, the tribal tab that isn't actually the person that does the liaison. We do the technical assistance to the people who would be the liaison. And while we're talking about I'm sorry. While we're talking about how we could help, um, we also help tribes get money in that, uh, especially with the EPA grants. We have tools on our website to help you write and an put together an application. We'll review the application for you. Um, we'll cover that at some point in the future. No, thank you for that. Because, Like I said, I'm very new to all this. So I'm trying to make sense of it all. So you, you kind of steered me in the right direction. So please do share. So all of this help that you're providing and whatnot, can you share some of the types of responses that you have participated in? Well, and there, 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 there are many different aspects to that. I think some of the, <clears throat> the best ones involve um, the uh, phase one that we did on some houses. Uh, again, done maybe not in the order it should have been done, but we were able to confirm that a property was clean. It's now the site of a community garden and domestic violence offices. And it's a property where we're going to host Earth Day events this year. I just got confirmed on a 
group of first graders who are going to come out and help with our community garden. And so we're really excited about that. But there's some other ones that were, uh, you know, way more interesting when we talk about a train derailment. We uh, oversaw the cleanup of that, which was a, a, you know, a huge mess. We had 13 rail cars go off the tracks right behind our tribal council offices here in reserve. And what so, type of substances were, were uh, there? We didn't know for a while, and that, that was the scary part about it. We didn't know whether we'd have to evacuate or not, but it turned out to be uh, just cottonseed oil, and uh, the none of the containers actually burst. We wound up only uh, putting about 50 gallons of cottonseed oil into a soybean field. You know, the, the train did have things like chlorine gas on it, so we, you know, we were fortunate that the 13 cars that uh, did go off the tracks were the ones that did. Um, we wound up getting a, a couple rail cars full of two by fours out of it too. So, all in all, it was an extremely interesting cleanup. What about the dead raccoons? <laughs> the dead raccoons are are not all that frequent, but every once in a while you you do get some some strange calls. And uh, uh, when they call about those, that's generally a county job uh, the to to take care of those and. Uh, if I'm in the neighborhood, I'll, I, I can usually get rid of it and put it in a safe place for a buzzard to take care no, I'm of. I'm sure that's what happens to all our listeners. You do a good job. People know they can count on you, and they figure they'll call you no matter what their problem is. Oh, my God. No, I, <laughs> I'm laughing because when I used to drive up to Big Cypress, we didn't have raccoons, but I would see dead snakes on Snake Road at all times. So I was like, listen, I got to call Mark over here. Come pick up <laughs> on the side of the road. <laughs> so what about brownfields? Um, can you share any stories about some of the brownfields you've worked in? Uh, most of the brownfields that, that I have specific experience with are more like documenting the cleanup and making sure that um, you know, this site is no longer any threat. So it's a lot of looking through uh, various reports and making sure that um, when we upload our data to EPA and their their acres database, which is the the record of all the uh, properties where EPA has um, recognized as uh, potentially hazardous or uh, allocated money towards, and th this is publicly available. I'm making sure that uh, those sites have all been, you know, cleaned up. They have uh, no further action uh, designated by the Tribal Council, and including all the documentation for that. Let, let me also add a little thing on perspective. Like, you know, Brownfields uh, started in the 90s, the Brownfields programs, unofficially, and then they passed the law in, uh, I think, 2002. And most of the uh, impetus for all this came from urban areas, that it was actually the National Conference for Mayors was complaining TPA in the 80s, and we discussed that with liability last time, that um, they couldn't get investors, they couldn't get banks to lend on properties. So that's why they did all this. But uh, most tribes are in rural areas, and rural areas are, are different than urban areas. They, they are. And there, there's a lot more activity, uh, transactions, economic activity happening in urban areas than rural areas. So what I'm trying to get at is it's even as challenging as it is to redevelop a brownfield in an urban area, it's generally even more challenging in a rural area. 
Right. And, and our uh, most recent uh, targeted brownfields assessment was done on some housing, some tribal housing, uh, where we had considerable meth use and potentially some meth manufacturing going on. And so those houses were, you know, we, we were really worried about, you know, throwing kids into those houses without a, a good assessment. And so uh, EPA did come in, they, they thoroughly tested all those houses, and uh, it turns out they're fine. The problem is uh, the, the people that had lived there weren't exactly the greatest uh, homemakers, uh, so there is quite a bit of damage to the house. Um, the cleanup isn't going to be a hazardous materials cleanup, but there's still a cleanup involved. Yeah, and let me, let me also point out to our listeners, um, there are a bunch of instances, examples, where Tribal housing authorities have worked with the tribal response programs on meth cleanups. And for just those listeners who have that problem and haven't connected with the tribal response programs, that's what I would do right away. I'd, I'd, I'd get in contact with them and say, could you help me with this uh, meth cleanup problem? If you haven't done that already, I'm sure most of our listeners who have that problem have done that. But even if we help one person, it'd be worth it. Definitely, definitely. And can you guys share with me how has the role of TRP evolved over time? Well, that that's um, something that's kind of dependent on on each response program's capacity and each uh, response program's unique situation. Like for me, um, there's not just a plethora of properties out there that this demands my attention. I need to get there. And then here's the next one coming right down the pipe. And I know some response programs where they literally have brownfields properties almost on a conveyor belt. And I'm thinking some of the larger reservations in the Dakotas where they're, they're just like these incredibly efficient cleanup programs that are using every single dollar that comes to them. And um, they're, they're really, you know, kind of like my idols up there. Some of those uh, larger reservations like Flandreau and um, Standing Rock and uh, our program has evolved in such a way that we were uh, helping out our uh, truck stop and trading post with underground storage tanks issues. Um, that's been a huge component of our program right now is making sure that um, they're compliant and for all their inspections. We're also dealing with a leaking underground storage tank and trying to uh, make sure that's cleaned up. In, in the right way and signed off on because EPA is the uh, regulating authority for us since it is on reservation land. Uh, the other aspect uh, where I've gotten extremely involved in is with climate change and how that's going to impact uh, cleanups, making sure that we're not uh, expending more energy and creating more greenhouse gases cleaning up a place than we would just leaving it in spots So trying to be more efficient in the work that we do uh, on the reservation and, and elsewhere. Um, we've put together some mitigation plans um, so that flooding and um, windstorms that which we've had both uh, numerous times in the past three years um, that we, we can uh, respond to those events better, um, installing generators on some of the buildings. So my role has really grown um, just so I have work to do. Basically, I like to be busy. I like to be connected. I like to know what's going on. 
and all these aspects uh, I'm able to incorporate into the uh, work plan of my 128A program. I, I like to add something. The, oh, you first, Cynthia. Okay, and one of the things that we've, we've seen happen, depending on, like Mark said, the size of the reservation, the number of uh, special problems they have, the, the capacity of the staff. What we have seen is a number of tribes develop specialties that can then be used by other tribes. So there's a lot of cooperation going on right now. Let's say that one of our um, upper Midwest or Great Plains tribes is dealing with oil and gas fields and man camps. They may, like Mark said, they may have so many brownfields properties to deal with that they develop uh, cleanup teams that then spin off into tribally owned companies um, and have the capacity to be to be the consultants for other tribes. We've also seen, I, I've seen this with, with um, drone programs, UAS programs, where one tribe might develop capacity where they have uh, drone pilots. I, I know of one tribe where uh, some of uh, some of the tribal members are former Air Force drone pilots, and they develop a program that then can be consultants for other tribes. So we, we are seeing TRP programs expand out so that they can be uh, regional resources for other tribes. I want to add another perspective that we talked about the Brownfields program started in the 90s and the law was passed in 2002. And, and when it first started, there really wasn't as much of a role for tribes. Um, and a lot of federal programs are that way. The way the, the tribes' roles, the tribes' responsibilities have expanded. Now, if you're in a rural area, um, you re generally rely on the state. If you're in a city, you rely on your city government to do your tri your responses and redevelop brownfields. If you're in a if you're not a tribe and you're in a rural area, um, your community is probably too small, and you rely on the state. And their priorities are different. They they uh, population means a lot. How many people are doing it, and um, I think one important point to get across is that the tribal response programs were created uh, because there was a need that the tribe's needs weren't being met by the state. Not not that there was anything nefarious involved, but just in terms of you know where the numbers are. And tribes, part of self determination, felt that we we should exert control. We should have the relationship with EPA, right? Like the states have the relationship with EPA and then they deal with their population. Well, the tribe should be dealing directly with EPA so we could promote our goals and objectives. And I actually heard that the first tribal cleanup was a, a Seminole program. It was on a Seminole property is, is what I heard. And I, I need to find out more about that, but I, I, I I was told that the first cleanup was was a seminal property. Oh, I did not know that. I think it, I, I agree with you, Dean, um, in, in terms of, even though I'm not native, but I do work for native communities, I find it so beautiful when tribes kind of take it upon themselves, like, you guys are not helping us, we're going to help ourselves. So it's really like these type of programs I think are so cool because it's, who knows the area better than the native community and, and the people that live in it and that drive by it every day and that, that live in those premises. 
they are the ones that need to have the control and 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 how are we going to clean it up what are we going to repurpose it for like i i get really excited because i'm like yes you, this is your your land you have to do with it what you know is best instead of having someone else come in and tell you this is what we're going to do with it so that that concept of of self-determination and and it it, it just it, it makes me excited it, it really does it might I, like I was saying at the beginning before we started recording, I geek out on all this. So you guys see me here like, oh my God, yes, and like nodding. And it, I'm actually, I'm, I'm taking it all in. So thank you guys for sharing that. Um, and, and that also gets into, a, a, you know, one of the main reasons we're doing this is that tribes should be doing it. But gee, we're such a small tribe. Do we have the expertise? Can we do it? And that's why we're trying to get the word out that number one, there's TAB, Technical Assistance for Brownfield, free technical assistance funded by EPA. Number two is, as Mark's pointing out, there's all these networks of where the, the tribal response coordinators, where, where the people involved feel they're talking to each other and sharing knowledge. No, I, I got super excited when Cynthia mentioned that they're trying to like expand and kind of become their own, because I, I don't know. I just feel like I know how I'm Hispanic. So I know how Hispanics are. We like to keep it kind of in house. And I trust more an expert that knows my cultural background that understands who I am to give me advice on what to do. I was thinking, like, I was imagining as Cynthia was speaking, and I'm like, how cool that it's like tribes helping tribes, you know, like we understand the, 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 the problems that we've had, we understand the culture, we understand the different ways that we work with each other, and they're so respectful of that. That it just sounds so beautiful to me. So no, I I get really excited when we talk about all this. So and and that means my next question to you guys, and we kind of touched about this a little bit here and there, but can you guys share with us other Indian housing authorities that are working with TRPs that you guys know of? I'm not sure specifically um, how how which you know housing authorities are are most active in the brownfield program. I know the experience that I've had is when we have these kind of large gatherings of, of response programs. Um, there is always a, a housing and urban development uh, voice on the agenda, uh, but because of our location, that voice is in Denver, Colorado. And they'll often like, oh, well, we can't make it. They'll uh, schedule someone to come in from Omaha who um, really isn't an expert on this. And so there's a big disconnect. Uh, and so some real, uh, I guess what I want to call like, you know, prize winning stories about the, the great interaction between HUD and TRP. I, I don't have one at my fingertips right now. I, I have one example. Um, I did a little work with the Northern Ponca Housing Authority. Of, of, I, I, I think it was like right at the beginning of COVID or right before. And, and they were working with their TRP coordinator because th they were acquiring sites for developing new housing. The Northern Ponca, um, they're a relatively new housing authority and they allow any Native American to, to go in their housing, okay? So they were in an urban area, I think it was even in Omaha, and they were acquiring 
like for a 12 unit or a 20 unit, you know, a, a, a substantial project, but not a huge project. And uh, with the HUD rules, if it's if it's more than single family, you have to do a phase one environmental site assessment. So on one hand, they could have hired out to uh, their people all over the country doing these phase ones. But instead, they went to their uh, tribal response program and they said, could you do the phase one for them? And n number one, you know, this was good because it was somebody from the tribe who was trying to further the, the tribe's objectives. Um, and another interesting thing about this was the person, who, you know, the tribal response program for the Ponca tribe is not a huge tribe. And in order to do a phase one, you have to be a qualified environmental professional. You have to have 10 years experience. And if you're a qualified environmental professional, you can make a lot of money doing phase ones and phase twos all over the place. Why would you take a job as a tribal response professional? But I'm not sure of the details, but they had this worked out where the person, the engineer who was working for the tribe, did most of the phase one, but they had over their shoulders somebody who did work for the tribe looking at the phase one and, and signing. I think they signed. I hope I'm not messing up the details, but it was more like a, a collaboration and things. People made it work. Well, yeah, I, there's I, a couple. I'm, I'm familiar with, with that. And yeah, it, they did their phase one. And even though they didn't have that 10 years experience, they would take their work to a person that did have that experience and he signed off on it for them and it wound up saving them quite a bit of money. And and one of the really important things about that, I'm sorry, I have, I have a dog barking in the background. Hopefully she'll stop. Um, Can't you train your dog? Uh, there must be a coyote out Don't worry, no, no, there's a coyote out in the field. Lewis can cut it out, so don't worry. Thank you, Lewis. <laughs> Sorry. So, so one of the really there's a couple of really important things of, of, about this this case study is one that Mark was talking about, where there was a collaboration. Um, many tribes can get that certification by having someone work with their TRP coordinator or someone else in the in the tribe to do those in in-field certification, they have to have a certain amount of time and a certain amount of experience. They can get that experience in these collaborations and build that capacity, which is, of course, part of tribal sovereignty. But another point that uh, Eugene mentioned I want to follow up on is that we have urban Indian populations, like in Kansas City, that are very large and they don't, they're not on a reservation. And in some cases, they may not have uh, enough citizens of any given tribe to trigger resources. But oftentimes, like in Kansas City or in Wichita here in, in Kansas, we have wonderful Indian centers and a, a very rich and large urban Indian population. And where they can reach out to tribal professionals and they can bring in nearby reservations where we may have someone wonderful like Mark, you know, or somebody nearby, they can be involved in those redevelopment schemes and actually serve their urban population better than, say, the municipal or county or, or state programs could. 
So that collaboration between an urban Indian population wanting to develop housing in an urban setting and nearby tribal professionals who are actually qualified to do that work for them and maybe more responsive to certain needs, especially if they want to include uh, different uh, building styles or different needs or multi-generational uh, units or, or something that would be more responsive to the urban Indian population than the urban population at large. Um, you know, we, we would like to in, encourage those sorts of collaborations. I'm just taking it all in. <laughs> it's so much. But no, I, I, I think no, it, I, I agree with you, Cynthia, because usually when we think of, of these communities, we always go to rural, 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 and, and there's a whole different um, aspect of it that also needs to be addressed. So thank you for sharing that. Wow. I This whole time we've been talking, I've, oh, I've, I'm in that mindset, rural, rural, rural. So you just kind of like pull, pull the, oh, however you say it over me, like I'm just, oof, it just shocks me. So. If any of our listeners were interested in learning more in depth about these programs or who do I reach out to kind of access these grants, these resources and, and all of this fun stuff, how do I coordinate the technical assistance with you guys? How could they reach you in your team? Well, the um, Kansas State University has the national tribal tab program we have many partners regionally that we work with but we can help people contact the most appropriate people for their needs and their location the way you can reach us most easily is to get online and go to our website it's ksu tab that's ksutab.org slash tribal and we have a page there that has all the necessary contact information. And like I said, we're, we're kind of air control. We, we will send you to the people that will be most appropriate. We have lots of partners that work for tribes. We have lots of expertise out there in Indian country. And we have lots of professors like me and, and Eugene who are more than, than happy to give assistance. So if you go to our website, uh, especially if you call Scott Nightingale, who is our coordinator at KSU. He is a very wonderful person to talk to, and he will find the person that you need. And it's all free. <laughs> that last part is the most important part, right? <laughs> well, thank you guys so, so, so much. I. I feel refreshed because I feel like I learned so much. So I feel, I hope our listeners also learned as much as I did today. Eugene, Mark, any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners today? Yeah, I would just like to encourage if, if you uh, are interested in this, if this has you geeking out a little bit, uh, Tribal Tab really is a, a good resource for more information and training. And they do a lot of webinars, a lot of outreach to the tribes. And so that their their calendar um, has a number of different events that might appeal to different people. Uh, I'll plug uh, the National Brownfields Conference if you really want to geek out on that in August in Oklahoma. And a lot of tribes, are, you know, this is the one that's closest to all the tribes. I'll also say that it, it, although it's not easy to redevelop a brownfield, 
A journey of a thousand miles starts with a few small steps. Beautifully said. Oh my God, I love that last quote, Eugene. So that brings us to the end of yet another Hogothinga episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And visit our website, www.nativelearningcenter.com to find more information on upcoming webinars um, and virtual trainings. And be sure to come back for more content. We definitely have so much more interesting content coming up with these amazing people right here. So thank you, Eugene. Thank you, Cynthia. And thank you, Mark, for yet another amazing episode.